simplest, clearest definition of the word thrive in the dictionary states that thrive means to grow vigorously. Something that most children do quite easily and naturally. I have two boys. Good thing the girls have left home because they're growing just fine. But our fridge seems to be emptier more often and more quicker these days than when all four kids are at home. But when a child is born, they gain weight. Especially, we you know, in the first few years of life. Uh, what is it? They double their weight every six months or three months. I forget what it is because it's been so long since I've had little kids in the house. But the expectation is that kids will go quickly. But in some cases, for a number of reasons, some kids sometimes don't meet the average expectation for their age range. And when this happens, they call it failure to thrive. In similar ways, though, the same can hold true for Christians. As some, after committing their life to Christ, never mature spiritually as they should. And therefore, as a result, they struggle greatly. They don't fly, thrive, they don't flourish, and again, they don't have much joy of living life as a Christian. Now, if you go back to, remember my last few sermons, I link thriving and striving and flourishing together with joy because Jesus gives us that type of joy that's not based on our circumstances or situations or events rather than a joy that the world gives us that's based on possessions, based on our status in life, based on other things external. But Jesus says we have joy, and we have it to the full. So my purpose of these sermons I've been doing in the Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, to help us understand better how we can thrive. How we can have the joy that Jesus gives us. And also, if you disagree with that joy, a mature Christian exhibits the fruit of the Spirit. What is the second fruit of the Spirit? Joy. Along with a whole other bunch of things as well. Now sadly, and I don't mean this judgmentally, some believers never mature. Beyond the element stage, elementary stages of the faith, There are also some Christians who certainly grow, but then at one point along the journey, they stop growing. They stop thriving along the way. Perhaps they've hit a plateau. Perhaps they've experienced a crisis in their life, and, or f perhaps they've made a poor choice. Whatever the case, something has happened that caused them to take their eyes off Jesus, the author and perfecter of the, their faith, and caused them to stumble pursuing him wholeheartedly. And as a consequence, they fail to thrive. At living the Christian life in this world, as they and we have been called to live. Therefore, they stop knowing the joy that Jesus has promised them, that Jesus gives, and they exhibit little of the spiritual fruit that we are called to have and bear in Christ. But again, going back to John 10.10, 10, the, fact, the fact remains, Jesus says he's going to give us a life that is a thriving life. 
because I think one part of the abundant life is a life of thriving. It doesn't mean there's absence of struggle. It doesn't mean there's abs- absence of hardship. It doesn't mean there's absence of personal pain. But it does mean joy. It does mean satisfaction. It does mean thriving. We often think, I think, in worldly thinking, think, thinking that if there's pain, if there's suffering, if there's hardship, then there can't be these other things. We're one-dimensional then, and most of us don't live life one-dimensionally. You ever been mad at your, somebody you love deeply? So why do we then say, well, how can Christ be in here if it's going so badly? Or how can I have joy when this is happening? The fact is, Jesus says our joy is there. Not based on our condition, not based on our circumstances. So my point of these sermons is how can we thrive living a Christian life in this world as the day of Jesus draws near? Now, after all, even though we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, and I'm not going to speculate on who wrote this book of Hebrews in this sermon series, we are sure that it was written to encourage believers in a great time of trial and a great time of persecution in terms of living out their faith as they lived and worked in the world around them. It does this, and Lorna mentioned earlier, uh, but the book of Hebrews focuses on the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Think about the first couple of chapters of Hebrews. He is the very image of God, paraphrasing the opening verses. It's focused on Jesus Christ, and because of who he is, and what he's done for us with his work on the cross, but then the author moves about talking about the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ to how that plays out practically, application-wise, in a believer's life. Holding up Jesus Christ as the example to be imitated, plus also, remember Hebrews chapter 11? The hall of faith? Those people are given to us as examples in how we are to live our lives. Telling believers how to imitate their example. Why? One of the reasons so we can thrive like they did. So they could have joy. Which brings us now to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. It's a path, it's all about application. We can learn much towards how to thrive better by looking at this passage to the things we talked about last week. Then verses 19 to 21 is that if we want to cultivate a thriving life of joy, we must have a healthy, consistent, vibrant, authentic life of prayer. Not just when we are broken and in need, but dialoguing with God, the living God, daily that Jesus has provided the way for us to do so. And secondly, we discovered last week in verse 21 is that we can thrive because we have a great high priest. And we looked at how he's praying for us, how he's mediating between us and God, and, and how he understands us because he lived in the flesh. Therefore, he understands what we walk through, what we bump against, that give us angst. And again, finally, our great high priest walks with us. 
every day, every moment, no matter what. And today we begin looking at the first of the let us statements that the rest of the passage speaks about. Specifically at verse 22, as it gives us some very practical ways and means that we will that will enable us to thrive. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed, washed with pure water. Verse 22 then simply says as a quick overview, we can thrive by growing, by being genuine, by being transformed, and by obedience. We'll dig into those each a bit deeper. And as this verse begins, the author states in light of verses 19 and 20, or 19 to 21, that we can have confidence coming to the living God because of what Jesus Christ had accomplished. That's what those verses talk about. Now, in light of those, he says in verse 22, as he begins, let us draw near. Which makes sense, because if the pathway into God has been opened by Jesus Christ, then the next logical advice, then, would be to draw near. We would think it was pretty rude if we saw somebody coming, we held up the door for them, wouldn't we? And they never stepped through? No, the natural, logical thing, if we see somebody coming, they open up the door, they usually walk through and say, thank you. Now, modern-day people might get upset because, well, you don't, you, as a guy, you don't have to hold the door open for me. No, it's the polite thing to do is open the door up and walk through it. Jesus has opened up a door. That's why the author says, now draw near. Walk through the open door. Use the path. And in doing so, I think it's obvious if we walk into the living presence of God, our chances of thriving are a lot greater than if we never walk through. But that word, that phrase, let us draw near, also means not just a one-time walking through, but we always must pursue God and his purposes. Because I hope we would agree with this statement, true faith in God through Jesus Christ, biblically, is not through saying a prayer. That may serve as the entrance point. But one of the ways the Christian life is proven is how much we're transformed along the way. In the image of Jesus Christ, again, what I said earlier, displaying more of the spiritual fruits, displaying more of the spiritual gifts that he gives. And we know that the author means that this drawing near is not just meant to be a one-time thing, but a continual drawing near to God is because in the Greek, the rendering of this phrase draw near to God, is something that's continual. It's something that we keep doing. Really speaking towards that, Christians, be it someone who's been a believer one second or somebody who's been a believer for eight decades, that the expectation is that all believers will continually grow and endeavor to grow closer to God through their walk. Mature in their faith. Again, isn't that something that's confirmed in simple logic? In our existence, so to speak? When we have a child, we expect that child to grow. 
even though I bellyache about it, the expectation is for my daughter one day to get married. For my children to leave the house. People are expected to mature. How many times have we said to ourselves or to our spells or to somebody else, will you grow up? There's an expectation that we're going to grow one way or the other. Some of us are growing up. Some of us are growing old. Some of us are growing out. So why wouldn't there be an expectation that we're going to grow in our faith? Growing our faith, drawing near to God, is something that's confirmed throughout the New Testament very quickly. Some passages. 1 Corinthians. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Colossians 1.28 Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom and with, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Then Hebrews talks about it quite a bit. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their power of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And Hebrews 6, 1, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of a faith towards God. That's the norm of Scripture. It's a norm in life that things are expected to grow. Things, people, are expected mature. So when's the last time you grew, friends, by drawing near to God? When's the last time you've grown spiritually? You took another step of faith. Are we pursuing God continually? Or do we think because we've lived the faith for so long... We can coast. Verse, or idea number one from this verse tells us that if we want to have thrive, if we want to thrive, if we want to have joy, whatever age, whatever year we've been in Christ, then we must continually desire to draw near to God. In other words, growing our understanding, our knowledge, ways of God. And of course, this is through the tried and proven methods of spiritual discipline, the spiritual disciplines, like having a consistent habit of being in his word, praying, fasting, listening to God. Read some great works of the faith. By great works, I'll be honest, I don't mean the daily bread. Pick up Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Foundations, basic foundations of the faith, I think, is from Stott. A whole bunch of other books are out there that feed our appetite. John Piper says that the intellect exists to throw logs into the furnace of our affections for God. How about memorize scripture? Every week in our bulletin, there's a memorization passage. Why? Not because we can go checky, checky, checky. But we can understand God better, grow in our faith, mature just that much more, and draw near to God, the joy giver, and thrive. 
That's the first principle. The second principle that this verse teaches us how we can thrive is to be genuine. By having a true heart, as verse 22 says. Genuine, when we come to God because we're in a full assurance of faith, we know that we can at any time, any place. Again, what verses 19 to 21 confirms. Coming to him as we truly are. Sinful, broken, hurt. But yet, are you like me that sometimes you feel like you have to put on a show? Or I can't come to God because I am so bad. See, we come to God as we truly are, not putting on a show to God, to others, to ourselves. Because we like to make ourselves sound so much greater than we really are. But we understand that putting on a show, we're doing it mostly for ourselves. Because God already knows who we are. And actually our friends probably have a pretty better idea who we are versus we do. Because they usually see through our facades. But rather than putting on a show, may we go to God just as we are. Knowing that Jesus died once for all sin. And that he did this. Or because he did this, he's faithful and just. First John 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a practice that believers are called to do because this book of John, 1 John, was written to believers, not unrepentant sinners. That when we come to God, he forgives us. Why? Because his body was broken. His blood was poured out on the cross for us. So we come to God for confession. To be forgiven since through Christ is really the only way we can have a true heart again. And having a true heart, we can walk forward with repentance, turning away from what we confessed from, and then experience the grace that the cross has guaranteed for us. The fresh start, the second chances, the 23rd chances, and then we'll thrive. Matt Chandler in his book, To Live is Christ, To Die is Gain, says this, Living a life worthy of the gospel does not mean pretending to be perfect. Instead, it means having the humility to think of others as better than ourselves. It means putting self-concern aside to work together, realizing that we are all still in a process. Let's have the grace of God for each other that he gave us in the overlooking of sins and the outpouring of unmerited love. And together we can strive in holiness imputed to us in Christ and promised to us in the age to come. So principle two from this passage of how to thrive is to be genuine, which then leads us to the third principle is that with desire to thrive, we must be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. In other words, be holy, verse 22. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And one of the words theologically that used to describe an aspect of transformation towards holiness is called sanctification. It's a big 26-cylinder word I had a pastor used to say, but it describes God's acting upon us or should say, it describes how God sees us now 
and always because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He doesn't see us as unrighteous, filthy, ragged sort of people because we have Christ's righteousness imputed in us or his blood covering us. God sees us as Jesus, whiter than snow, purer than mud, sinless. doesn't see us as sinners. He sees us as saints now. Yet sanctification, any of you have ever studied, has two elements or points to it. Positional, again, how God sees us now, will see us for eternity because of what Jesus Christ has done. But sanctification is also progressive. Since we are, not, since we are here now and not there. Since we are not perfect now, but one day we will be. Since we know how far short we fall from the glory of God, but one day we're going to live within his glory. Nevertheless, even though we're not there yet, in our existence, we're not sanctified holy, we're still called to walk in holiness. We can become holy by making wise choices in the big things, but most like, mostly through the small choices of everyday living. That allows us to become more holy. And as we do, what happens? Again, it's not a Chucky. We experience God and the manifestations of God more in greater ways and means. I know Lorna has talked about it. Why do we hear about more healings in third world countries, miraculous, than we do in Canada? I'm not saying anything about the medical profession, but if you don't have a medical profession as a backup and all you got is God, and you choose to live holy, you see God. And I think if we saw God more, I think it stands to reason then we'll thrive more. That God is real. It's not just this intellectual thing or habit thing that we do in the culture. And granted, we will not pursue holiness at any rate until we deeply understand the great grace that the blood of Jesus has given us that has and does wash away our sins. As such of understanding of how wretched a person we once were, but yet God still save us, ought to propel us to live holy lives ought to propel us to choose to live for him. And as we do, thrive and be joyful. Again, Matt Chandler says, where there's not striving, toil, or pursuit of holiness, power encounters are actually held cheaply. This is why Dieter Bonhoeffer called a life of laziness and apathy about the gospel of belief in cheap grace. Belief in radical grace does not make people turn away from Christ with passion, despite the fact that grace means we are saved apart from how passionately or dispassionately our pursuit is. If we truly believe we were saved apart from our works, we would work harder purely out of gratitude and worship. This is not the same thing as and should not be continually disguised from working hard for God's approval. It is the difference between obeying to be accepted 
and obeying because we are accepted. If we have believed that we are accepted, when we have that choice to lie or not to lie, we'll choose the right thing. If we believe we are accepted, when we have that choice to gossip and slander, we'll choose either to or not to. Rightly. See, we need to understand how much we have been accepted. How much has nothing to do with us. And that leads to transformation, but also leads to our last principle of how we can thrive. As principle four is from this passage, that we can thrive through obedience. Our body is washed with pure water. The last phrase of verse 22, which I believe means something external, because the last principle is something internal. last phrase dealt with the internal transformation of the heart through choosing to be holy. And now with this last phrase, scholars suggest two ideas towards what this looks like in the external. First, that we as believers allow ourselves to be washed by the word. Philippians, or Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 26. Paul uses the wording in a similar way, verse 26, that he might sanctify her. Talk about how husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This is why some scholars point towards Paul as the writer of Hebrews. So how do we allow the word to wash over us? Well, how do you allow water to get washed over you? You get immersed in it, don't you? You either jump in the bath or you turn on the shower. But you get your fill of water to get immersed in it, to get washed by the water. So how do we get immersed in the word? We read it. We study it. We endeavor to understand it. But most of all, again, I could read all the textbooks about how to do brain surgery. I could even watch YouTube videos. Would any of you like me to touch your brain, though? Please say no. There's something different between reading something, studying something, but it's way different to put that in practice. And that proves how much you know. James 1, 22 says, what? Not just be readers of the word, but be doers of the word. What does doers of the word mean? Standing up here and preaching, that's part of it. But then living it out in obedience is the main part of it. Now, why should we live out the standard, the parameters in which the word says how we ought to live? Who's the word given by? God. He's our creator. Who else know better how the creation could work except the creator? So it stands the reason then if we live within the boundaries and parameters that the creator has given us, we're going to thrive. Yeah, I have a fish tank. Those fish do really well when they're in the water. A couple weeks ago when the boys dropped something heavy on my fish tank and it cracked, and I take the fish out, I didn't really have anything really great to put them in. When those fish jumped out of it and I found them the next morning, they didn't do really good overnight. Same holds true with us. God has given us parameters. He's given us 
commands, principles to live within. So why? So we could thrive and have joy. And then scholars point to the other side of perhaps this means is the most basic act of obedience. When you think of being immersed in water in scripture, what does that represent? Being baptized. Allowing our bodies to be washed. Why do we get baptized? In order to reflect the inner reality of our union with Christ outwardly to the world. In doing so, we identify ourselves with Jesus, the one who gives joy. And the one who promises us the life that's abundant. Now, either way, we look at that phrase to be washed by the water. We can't deny that obedience then is important. In living and thriving in the Christian life. A.W. Tozer said this about true faith and obedience. The Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience. Nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring forth from faith. He goes on and says the two are opposite sides of the same coin. So the last principle is that if we can thrive through walking by choosing obedience. As we close, the spark that God used to begin the Reformation, Martin Luther said, the true living faith which the Holy Spirit instills into the heart simply cannot be idle. Our faith is either growing or it's falling backwards. Therefore, considering Hebrews 10.22, let's not go backwards. Let's go forward. Let's not just settle on surviving at life all the time. Lord is completely right. Sometimes we need to hide in God's arms. But we're never called to live there. So may we strive to thrive through seeking to continually growing by drawing near to God, through being genuine before God, others, and ourselves, through seeking to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ, and through the walking in obedience to the word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we have a lot to swallow. Because in our flesh, this seems hard. But you've never told us to live our Christian faith through our flesh, but live it through the power of the Spirit within us. So Lord God, let us tap into him and let him lead us in these areas in greater, better ways so we could thrive and have joy today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.